Matthew chapter 20. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 1530. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse number 17. Jesus Christ is the best thing about us. Thank God for all that we have, but Christ is the best thing about us as individuals and as a church family. It is a universal desire on the part of, I think, everyone still breathing, that they want to influence others to do what they want them to do. There's no one in the world that wants to be of no influence. There's no one in the world that doesn't want, uh, that wants no influence at all. I mean, husbands want to influence their wives. My wife sure wants to influence her husband. Parents, parents want to influence their children. Employees want to influence their employers. Law enforcement wants to influence citizens. There's no one in the world that doesn't want some kind of influence. Now, how in the world do we pursue this without it turning into manipulation? without it compromising our integrity. Well, Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. And I want to begin reading there all the way down to verse number 28. And it says there, Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What, what is it you want, he asked. And she said, grant that, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Oh, we can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." There is no one in the world or in human history that has ever known influence like Christ. And here he teaches it. And there are several things that we can implement into our own lives to make sure that we've got influence. The first happens to be Jesus model. Jesus model. This answers the who question. Who is my model for influence? As I try to influence others in my life, who is my model? And who you've chosen as your model says an awful lot about you. When Jesus Christ is our model, we can expand our influence. Now, uh, there are a number of ways to think about this model, but I want you to think about this for a moment. In verses 17 through 19, look there again with me, especially verse 18. He said, we're going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man, which is an apocalyptic reference that really, ironically, refers to His deity and lordship, and He's the head of the state of the kingdom of God. He says, He will be betrayed to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn Him to death and will turn Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Jesus piles one term on top of another to talk about the low position he's about to bear by dying on the cross at the hands of those in the first century. But then look what happens with his influence at the end of verse 19. On the third day he will be raised to life. Now that is the story of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has been grasping and holding and wielding influence for 21 centuries, and it just expands every year and continues on and burgeons and grows over and over again. That is the influence of Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. Let's imagine that you and I are talking one day 21 centuries ago. We're back in the first century, and we're in Galilee. And you're a betting person. I hope you're not, but you're a betting person. And we uh, discuss a, a wager. And let's say that you've got to wage on who is going to be the most influential in 21 centuries. Your choices are the Roman Empire at that day with its military, its might, its Caesars, its Senate, all of its laws, its jurisprudence, all of the magnanimous glories of Rome. You've got to bet between them and a peasant Jewish rabbi with 12 incompetent employees. Which of these two are you going to choose? Well, in that time, I think many people would understand you choosing the Roman Empire. But folks, in just a few centuries, as Rome was descending downward, the movement of Jesus Christ was rising upward, and it has continued to burgeon and grow, expand around the globe. And, and church attendance in the United States, for example, has been about the same since December 7, 1941, the Sunday after that. There, there are notions that, that are contrary to that, but most people don't understand the research and statistics. Church attendance is not declining in the United States. It's been plateaued since about 1941. The worst church attendance was the Sunday before Pearl Harbor, in fact. But around the globe, it continues to burgeon and grow so that it dominates today Africa, Latin America, and Asia. And even in this day, you cannot understand the continent of Africa, nor can you understand uh, Central and South America, nor can you understand Asia without understanding the movement of Jesus, nor can you understand the movement of Jesus without understanding Africa, Latin America, and Asia, because the faith has just burgeoned and grown all over those continents uh, in unprecedented manners. Now, that's, what not, that's not what the secular theoreticians said would happen 100 years ago. They expected a decline, but it's burgeoned and it has grown. In fact, they tried to prognosticate uh, just how much it would grow beginning in the 70s, and the growth just surpassed all of their projections that by the 90s they quit projecting. They knew they would be wrong, and they would underestimate the growth. So Jesus Christ, I believe, is worthy of emulating in his life. He's worthy to be trusted in his death, 
and in his resurrection. And what our church family does is that they invite you to reject anything that keeps you from Christ and to trust his cross and resurrection alone for grace and forgiveness. And we'll give you the opportunity at the end of this message to do that. Our staff will stand here in front, and if you want to talk with them about making that decision for Christ, they'll be glad and very happy to help you with that. But I have got to tell you with utter confidence, I do not hesitate or have any reserve in me whatsoever in inviting the entire world to come to Jesus Christ. He has got the greatest influence and he always keeps his word. That's Jesus' model. But there's a second thing, and that is Jesus' motive. And this answers the why question. Embrace this and it can expand your influence. That is, why do you want influence in the first place? Well, some want influence so they can influence others to quit aggravating them. Some want it because they're somewhat insecure unless they're controlling uh, the, uh, their circumstances and other people. Some are so inwardly focused and so focused on themselves that they can't imagine thinking of others. They, they've only thought of themselves. Um, the truth is, is that if you've got these selfish motivations, what you'll do with family and employees and what you'll do with others is that you'll do nothing but create suspicion in them. And it will be enormously difficult to influence people in the right direction. Now, in verses 20 through 21, Jesus asked them, what do you want? And they said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. What they're wanting is that they're wanting influence so that they can have positions of authority and power. It's precisely what they want. They've got the wrong motive. The right motive is to get God's vision for individuals and for people. What does God want of the people that you know in your life? Embrace that and influence them to pursue that. The only way to have positive and constructive, eternal, godly influence is this, and that is to be in it for others. So my influence will grow not only when I embrace Jesus as my model, my influence will grow if I want influence for the sake of others. I want them to become who God made them to be. So that's Jesus' model. That's Jesus' motive. But then there's a third thing, and that is Jesus' mind. This answers the what question. What is it that I'm informing myself with to instruct me in influence and in influencing others? Now in verse 22, Jesus looked and said to them some real straight words. He said, you don't know what you're asking. Now, if we were saying this today, we might say, you have no idea what you're talking about. And that's true. And that's what Jesus is telling them. And so Jesus corrects them, and he teaches them, and it becomes very obvious from these two sons' life, who were James and John, that they end up learning their lesson. James becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, until his martyrdom in Acts chapter 12. John becomes the great love apostle and the apostle of the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, and is, uh, lives into his 90s, is pastoring seven churches at one time in, uh, in Asia Minor uh, that are uh, spoken of in Revelation 2 and 3. He ends up learning these lessons. These fellows are headed the wrong direction with the encouragement of their mama. And Jesus corrects them and turns them in the right direction. They were teachable. Those who make a difference in a positive, constructive, eternal, and godly way are those who are willing to listen to other people. They are teachable 
people. Uh, in other words, your future influence depends a lot on what you learn. And usually you learn from one of two places. One, the books you read. And number two, the people that you know. Reminds me of something that uh, Dr. Red Duke used to say on uh, some of the Texas local cast. He had a medical minute in the Dallas-Fort Worth area when I was a student there. And he um, uh, was talking about the uh, importance of good relationships with others and uh, that kind of influence. And he said, as he ended that particular clip, he said, if you ever see a turtle on top of a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. That's true. And listen, if we achieve anything, if we've got any kind of positive and constructive, godly, eternal influence, it's because of the books we've read and the people that we have met and how they've counseled us and that we have had a teachable heart. The person that cannot be taught anything is stuck where he or she is. And that's true for parents. That's true for employees. That's true for employers. That's true for everyone that you know, including ourselves. And so Jesus' mind, uh, and, and so one of the books, of course, that we need to be deeply involved with happens to be the Bible. And that's why at 9.15 we offer Bible studies every Sunday morning for the whole community. That's why we preach and teach the Bible. And usually if you follow along in the biblical text, I'll just simply read a text and explain it. But I don't have anything else worth saying, to be quite honest with you. And um, that's why daily getting into the Scripture and having a walk with God that is vital and robust and growing and living is so vitally important. Jesus' mind. So my influence will grow if I will listen to others. But there's a fourth item here in the text, and that happens to be Jesus' mission. And this answers the question, where? The where question. Where is my life going? What path am I on? Verse 23, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. That's an Old Testament symbol for suffering, sorrow, and God's judgment. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was drinking deep of the cup of the judgment of God. God was pouring out His wrath and fury for the world's sins upon Jesus. And that's why He died there. And that's why Jesus uses the word cup. You will indeed drink from my cup, He says in verse 23. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. As wonderful, exalted, and lovely as Jesus is here in Matthew 20, Jesus did not get in the way of God's plan for James and for John. Even Jesus did not usurp that authority. Now later, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has all authority after His resurrection. But this is before His resurrection. After His resurrection, He'll say, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. But not at this time. So Jesus would one day possess all authority, but He does not grasp at it here at this point. And so uh, He goes on to say in verse 23, um, to grant this is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. In other words, the Father was designing individuals at that time, and perhaps at this time as well, He was designing individuals to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus Christ. In other words, God had a specific plan for these individuals and was directing them towards it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we may walk in them. 
That's what Jesus Christ has done. He creates individuals for a specific plan and a specific purpose in life. And he's got that for you as well. Horace Bushnell, back in the 19th century, preached a sermon entitled one day, Every Life a Plan of God. God has a specific, identifiable, knowable, doable, practical will for every area of of your life. I mean, maybe not the color of socks you chose to wear this morning. I'm not saying that. But who you are to marry, the vocation, the, the places of employment, the kind of service that you render to Him in His kingdom, God has a plan. In other words, you do not have to invent this and undergo the stress and the frustration of inventing all of this. You can go before God. If you know Christ and will go through Jesus Christ, you can go to God in that way and know what it is God wants you to do. In fact, Whenever you've got struggles and difficulties, challenges or burdens when it comes to your own family, even your children, you can go before God and God will direct you with what to do with your family. God is capable of doing that. He's a God of love and He wants to guide you. Now let me say, if you do not use your life for the purposes of God, you'll, you'll meet nothing but frustration. Worse, you'll meet success. Oh, you don't want to spend your life succeeding at something God doesn't want you to live out. Oh, that's the awfulest thing. But one of the best things is if you end up living something God doesn't want you to live is to fail at it. Oh, that's the best thing. Because then you wake up and you turn. You don't want to succeed at something God doesn't want you to do. In other words, God has a plan and a purpose for these areas of life, and He wants you to live them. When you don't use your life that way, it would be... Something like taking a screen door and using it on a submarine. Now, in its place, a screen door is very useful, is it not? A screen door is useful on the front door or the back door. But it's not of much help on a submarine. It will sink it, and many a person has sunk a life and sunk a family and sunk others by placing their life in the wrong place. God wants you to put you, wants to put you in His place. In other words... We are, Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship, not our own, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. And usually that's a reference to the time before Genesis 1. Prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what God has done. Every life is a plan of God. And so my influence will grow if I will embrace Jesus' mission. But there's a fifth question here in the text. And that happens to be Jesus' method. And that's the how question. How do I achieve influence in life, in my family, in my work, in every other place? How do I do that? Well, there, there are three uh, ways to label influence here in the text. The first is illegitimate influence. Did you read verse 25? Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. That's illegitimate influence. And there are some people that do much the same in, in their influence, uh, where they do have influence. They may attempt to bully people or manipulate them or use their title, use their education, use their authority to get people to do what they, they want them to do. Now, there's some of those things that are legitimate and helpful, but uh, the bullying and intimidating and manipulation certainly is not. But if you've got a title and a position, all you have then is a title and position. It doesn't mean that you've got influence. 
you've got to do something else. So Jesus talks about illegitimate influence in verse 25. But then he goes on and talks about inverse influence in verse 26. Look there. Not so with you. Now watch the inverted relationship here. Watch real carefully. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. So Jesus says, if you want to be great, you must understand the inversion of influence. If you want to be great with great influence, you've got to be a servant. That was merely a household servant there. It's not necessarily what you are, but that's how you act, you see. Uh, In other words, you've got a vision for someone else's life, uh, your family, your employees, your, your, your friends, others. You need to influence some people. You've embraced God's plan for other individuals. Not your own, but His. And so if you want to implement that vision and you want to be great at it, you, you've got to go low. The way up in the kingdom of God is down. That's true with God and prayer. That's also true when it comes to our influence with other people. So if you want to be great at implementing God's vision for others in your life, over whom you have some responsibility, if, if you want to be great at that, you've got to go down to the place of servanthood. But it gets even larger than that. Now, if you not only want to be great, but you want to step it up and be first, Jesus says, you've got to become even lower than a servant. You've got to be a slave, is what you've got to be. Now, please don't let anybody ever tell you that the Bible countenances a 19th version of American slavery. It does not. The Bible never approves of that. The Bible was misused in the 19th century for that. Uh, There were people in the Old Testament that voluntarily gave themselves to servitude so they could pay off their debts. It was limited, and there were some civil and human rights that accompanied it. But the Scripture actually severely, harshly condemned those actions related to 19th century slavery. That was awful. In fact, kidnapping someone was met by capital punishment. So don't let anyone tell you that the Bible countenances slavery. It it does not. It did countenance servitude, which the modern equivalent is having too much credit card debt, okay? So in any case, that's what the Bible does happen uh, to do. Um, So inverse influence. The higher you want to go, the more influence you want, the lower you've got to go with being a servant to other people. Hey, it reminds me, one of the greatest episodes of servants in our history was uh, soon after President Reagan uh, had that assassination attempt upon his life. He was in the hospital, and he stepped into the bathroom, and he was uh, trying to wash his face, and he got water all over the floor. And nurses came in and saw the president on his hands and knees cleaning up the water because he didn't want them to have to do it. Hey, we had a staff member this morning that did the same. There was some water on some steps in one of our buildings, and they took some paper towels and went over and just cleaned them up, lest someone should fall and injure themselves. These kinds of small servant-oriented things increase and expand influence. So when it comes to influence, we've got to understand the inverse relationship with it. So you do not, if you want to have influence, you do not look for a crown, you look for a cross if you want influence. So there's illegitimate influence and inverse influence, but then there's immeasurable influence in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Now here Jesus explains His immeasurable influence and why it is that He would have such tremendous influence down through the centuries. He is our sample of um, 
he says, just as the Son of Man came to serve. Uh, folks, if this life is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. Wouldn't you agree? So he's our sample. But then there's a surprise here. The Son of Man did not come to be served, and there he departed from every ancient leader. Um, Jesus, when he came to this earth, really didn't get anything out of it that he didn't have before he was incarnated or born in Bethlehem. He was God before, exalted, magnified, adored by angels, and untouched with human pain and suffering. When he came to the earth, he took on a human body in Bethlehem that could die at Calvary and be raised from the dead. And when he, after his resurrection, when he appeared to Thomas, do you remember how Thomas identified him? Or how Jesus identified uh, himself to Thomas? Not that you were there, but do you recall how he did that? He showed Thomas what? Now he's in his resurrected, glorified body that he is in today. When he identified himself to Thomas, he pointed to what? Nail prints in his hands and feet. That's all Jesus got out of this thing. Obviously, he did not come to be served, but to serve. And that leads us to the next item. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. In other words, Jesus has just encouraged service, but then he lives it. He's got impeccable integrity. No one can bring a legitimate charge against Jesus Christ. He's got this integrity. And then he's a substitute. He said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, often when we think of the word ransom, what we think about is a kidnapped victim and parents paying off a ransom or family paying off a ransom to go in the place of the victim. And so if they will give the money as a substitute, the ransom as a substitute, they get the family member back. And Jesus is saying, I operate much that way. Uh, the court of God demands a penalty for human sin, and I am stepping in as a ransom. I'm stepping in as a substitute for the world by dying for the world in its place. This is the extent to which Jesus went to serve our eternal needs. He became a ransom for us. Can I say to you, he's really serious about fulfilling God's plan for your life. He is very serious about rescuing us from the penalty of our sins. And he went to the extent of dying for us. So th there must be another level. He's talked about great, become a servant first, become a slave. What do you do if you're Lord? You die. You become a ransom. And that's precisely what Jesus did here. So let me summarize this. The way to influence people to do what you want them to do is to do what they need you to do, even to the point of sacrifice. Uh, and, and most leaders' lives then are consumed with service more so than authority. Uh, it, it, it's what I call the iceberg principle. Uh, if you ever have the opportunity to look at an iceberg, you'll find the vast majority of the iceberg is submerged underwater. And it's just a small portion that's above it. And that's the way it is with sermon preparation, by the way. All you see is what's above the water. There are hours and hours that go into uh, the preparation of a message. The same is true when it comes to influence. When it comes to influence, there's an awful lot below the surface and just a little of authority to, uh, visible to the human eye. Well, that is Jesus' method. 
the higher and the greater influence you want, the lower you've got to go. And, and Jesus demonstrated this. Jesus served us as a ransom and a substitute because that's precisely what we needed him to do. You see, Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Now that is a very large statement. It's not often in human communication, in human language, that you can use the words always and never without exaggerating. There's often an exception. With, with the human race outside of Christ, there are no exceptions to that. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so we're guilty before God. But then the Bible even makes it worse. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So God isn't impressed with our spiritual resume, our church resume, not impressed at all. And so we're guilty before God, and there's not a thing we can do about it. In fact, the Bible will say we're dead in trespasses and sins in Ephesians 2.1. And so really, in many ways, all we are is corpses. We're helpless before God. We're guilty before God. God has an inflexible law in his court, and that's why Jesus came and died, because we couldn't do anything about it. When I was in college, we used to sing a song. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. I had a need. He met it with his debt. Because he's not only inflexibly holy and permanently and uh, determinedly uh, pure and just, he's also love. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place. And the Bible now teaches that what we do is we do what Jesus said. He said, repent and believe the gospel. So that leads me to two questions. One, what is it that would keep you from giving to Jesus Christ your guilt and your life and your eternity? What would keep you right now from doing that? Well, the Bible says repent from it, which is another way of saying reject it, repudiate it. And Jesus said repent and believe the gospel. Then, a second question. Is there any good reason not to entrust yourself to the crucified, risen Son of God who is love? Can you give a good reason today not to embrace Him fully and holy and trust His death and resurrection alone for hope and forgiveness in heaven? Is there anything at all? So what Jesus said makes entirely good sense. And, and by the way, there's no one like Jesus. Did we say that this morning? Have we made that clear? Repent and believe the gospel. We're not inviting you to us. We're not inviting you to Beach Haven. We're inviting you to Jesus Christ. And we want to give you the opportunity to open your heart to him. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for today and bless your name for being so kind and so good. Thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. And I bless you for the influence that he has had and all how he's made me different. And I'm so grateful. And I pray for friends today that need to repent and believe the gospel. I pray that you would help them to do so. And let them meet the Lord today. And would you work by your Holy Spirit to make it real. Now, as you keep praying and talking to God, no one's looking around. Why don't you just concentrate on the Lord and keep speaking with Him? He's invited you to. Right where you're seated, why don't you go ahead and just admit to Him and get honest with Him about your guilt 
You know, you violated his law. You stand guilty before him. And it's a treacherous, terrible condition to be in. I know. But he loves you and you can come to him. Use your own words. But why don't you talk with him about that and just get honest with him? You can't hide anything from him. And he doesn't want you to and you don't need to. Use your own words. But get honest with him. And now why don't you tell him that you're now transferring your trust and your hope for forgiveness in heaven from yourself to his death and resurrection. Use your own words, but transfer your trust from self to him. He's not impressed with us, but he sure is impressed with Jesus. And he'll take Jesus' merits on your behalf. Why don't you transfer your trust now? And now use your own words, but ask him to make you a public and serious follower of Jesus Christ. And just abandon yourself to his mission in your life. Okay, some of you want some further help with that or you have other decisions you need to make. Our staff will be standing here at the front of the aisles and they'll receive you. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to turn around with Him, if you want to become part of Beach Haven, if you need to follow uh, Jesus in baptism, uh, Tommy Fountain and uh, Dr. Sims will be here. They'll be glad to receive you. Why don't you come? Let's quickly stand. I'm going to finish my prayer and we're going to sing and we're going to give you the opportunity to do serious business with God. Blessed God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Please magnify Jesus in our response now, and please collect for him all the majesty he deserves. In Jesus' name.